I told the, <clears throat> the opening group in the auditorium this morning that we all have a cheat sheet as to what, uh, who the individual is, and they even give us a picture so we know we got the right, we got the right person. <laughs> and so am I introducing Wayne Berger or is it Diamond Bates? No, Wayne Berger's sitting in the back there. <laughs> Donnie and I have a, <clears throat> a close affection for one another. We are both the, the missionaries, the two missionaries, and the only two missionaries uh, who served in foreign mission field that are on staff. And, but we're also both elders here at Bear Valley, so we get to see too much of each other, I suppose, <laughs> in meetings and meeting with other individuals. but. Donnie just and his family are just really lovely people, uh, and I love them dearly. Uh, he's originally from <clears throat> McCurtain County, Oklahoma, graduate of the Bear Valley Bible Institute, holding a bachelor's and master's degree from that institution. Married to his wife, Noma, they have one daughter, Jessica, and I've had Jessica in class too. That is neat for me. <clears throat> he and his family serve congregations in Colorado, Texas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Donnie Noma also served as missionaries in Chile, South America. Currently, Donnie's the Dean of Academics and instructor in Bear Valley Bible Institute in Denver. He also serves as one of the shepherds of Bear Valley Church of Christ. Donnie just really has, uh, in conversations uh, and being in meetings with Donnie and, and the work that he and I do together, he's just a, an individual that I really rely on quite a bit. And uh, of course, since I've been around for a little while, I also had Donnie in class as a student. So, <laughs> so he looks very familiar. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but um, he and his family are certainly a joy to be around. He's a fine, fine Christian man and uh, is a really a good example of being one of God's servants. And so without uh, further information, Danny, <laughs> preach the word. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate you not bringing up much about the time I was a student here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. This has gone to sleep, and I don't know how to get started. <laughs> I don't think you want me to preach until I get tired. <laughs> yeah, see if you can get that started. Um, yeah, Dave mentioned that, um, there we go, how familiar um, my face would be, and my face doesn't look like it did 40, however many years ago that was. <laughs> or not much else looks that way either. The title of this lesson is, When There Is Nowhere Else to Turn. Have you ever been in a situation that is described that way? Where they're just really, in your mind, there is nowhere else to turn. You've tried everything. You know, the whole purpose of, of this series of lectures this weekend is to help us find hope and trust in difficult times. It's called clinging to hope and trust in difficult times. And I, I've started over the years when people tell me, it, it's become very common. You ask somebody, well, how are you doing? So well, I'm hanging in there. 
Well, I've kind of developed an answer to that that's probably just as trite as the phrase, I'm hanging in there. And that's, well, don't turn loose. <laughs> and, and it really, when you think about that, it's, that's really the way we ought to be uh, approaching life. Don't turn loose. Cling to that hope and trust. Um, well, and the reason for us choosing that as a theme this year is the fact that we have just been through two and a half years of some very difficult times, times that, that none of us have seen before. And now I know that there are many in this room that can remember military conflicts where there was the stress of, uh, that families would go through, the worry of, uh, about danger to their loved ones and, and that kind of thing. And I know that a lot have dealt with the stress of economic worries. Uh, it seems like that's been a news item my entire life is the economy and people being laid off, things like that. And all families have been touched by the difficulties associated with illness and death of a, of a loved one. However, the recent and in some cases current pandemic has brought a level of stress and hardship that really, I would say, none of us were prepared for two and a half years ago, in which there were few and sometimes no answers. As, as an elder in the church, I found this particular challenge to be one of the most unexpected and, and for lack of a better word, challenging of all the challenges. I mean, there, there were no books available two and a half years ago on what to do when a pandemic strikes and the church has to close its doors. Now, there are a lot of those books now, <laughs> but there were no books like that then. Um, most here will likely identify with the feeling that I'm talking about the eeriness of driving on a city street, in Denver's case, a city of over a million people when there's no traffic. I mean, literally no traffic. That's just spooky. Something I'd never dealt with before. In my capacity as a staff member at the Institute here, I travel around the country uh, a lot and, and speak at different congregations, and I've made it a point uh, when I've been able to travel and, and travel more now than I could have uh, a year and a half ago, but uh, to talk to preachers and, and elders about this very thing. And every single time, every person, every congregation, has had very similar stories. It was simply something we were not prepared to deal with. It was simply unprecedented. And I know that someone could say, well, no, no, there was a pandemic like this uh, a little over 100 years ago. Well, that's true. But I would argue that culture was different than our culture. And the, the answers, the response that they made to it and needed to make to that pandemic was not the same response that we needed to make to that pandemic. Um, so things were different. It's something we'd never seen before. And another important distinction I really feel like I, I should mention is that the level of hopelessness and despair that resulted from this pandemic was different for every family, and in some cases, every individual of every family. Effects of the pandemic ranged from 
not much more than just the inconvenience of not being able to find goods to buy, toilet paper. I still haven't figured out what respiratory disease has to do with that particular shortage, but that inconvenience affected a lot of people. Having to wear a mask in public was an inconvenience. But it ranged from that to the closure of churches, of businesses, and then even more to the suffering, the loss of a loved one. After a pro prolonged battle in which that loved one was made to face that battle alone because family couldn't be there at his or her side. So there's a wide range of, of stress factors there. Hopelessness and despair seem to be our natural response to stress, to difficult times. It doesn't have to be, and we've already heard some great lessons in this lectureship pointing us in the right direction. In this lesson, I, I want us to look to the prophet Habakkuk for some answers for this. Now, people around here who know me might tell you that Habakkuk is my favorite book of the Bible. I don't know that I would agree with that, but it's up there. My actual favorite one is whichever one I happen to be teaching at the time. And, I, and I'm forced to dig deeper into it. And I, and I love doing that. Um, if we had time, I would make you fall in love with the book of Leviticus before we left today. Um, but Habakkuk is a favorite because of his the level of hopelessness and despair that he experienced and the way he winds up, the way he ends. Some great lessons there. Habakkuk was a contemporary of prophets like Jeremiah. And so he's prophesying, he's doing his work of ministry in, a, in the years immediately before the Babylonians come in, take Jerusalem and carry most of the rest of the Jews into captivity in Babylon. Now in the book of Habakkuk, they're referred to as the Chaldeans, but that's the time frame that we're talking about. And those last few years in the history of Jerusalem, before Nebuchadnezzar brought the Babylonians in to take that city, were, were miserable years. There was corruption, there was injustice everywhere you look. And one of the reasons that, that Habakkuk has always appealed to me so much is because of the level of frustration that he experienced. Habakkuk seems more real to me, more a real person than... Now, they all seem, if we're, if we're being objective in our Bible study, then all of the characters of the Bible should, should be real to us because they were real. They were real people. Habakkuk sounds more like people I know and people that I sometimes see in my mirror <laughs> because of his frustration and how he expresses that frustration. And he even begins his book, his oracle, by taking God to task. And, and I've described it this way before in class. His prayer is basically, Lord, I don't know why I keep praying to you because you don't even listen. <laughs> I asked, that, I asked this question one time in a class after I made that statement. I said, how many of you have ever prayed that way? And I had a couple of people raise their hand, and I wanted to say, no, you have not. Nobody prays like that. But, but Habakkuk did. And God answered that prayer. But uh, it was, he prayed that way because he was so full of hopelessness and despair at what was going on in the, in the nation around him. 
Aren't you glad we don't have to feel that way or nobody feels that way today? No, people do feel that way. There's a lot of hopeless and, and despair over that. Well, this time God did answer it and told him what his plan was. And Habakkuk has a hard time with that. And I really don't have time to deal very deeply with chapters one and two of this book. There's only three chapters. I've become convinced over the years of my ministry that humility is one of, if not the key characteristic of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to argue and say, no, it's got to be love, I'm not going to argue with you. But humility, when, when Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, for the next two or three verses, he describes humility. And that's what we need to have. And Habakkuk shows in the end of this book his humility before God and his, God's, plan for his people. Showing us how we ought to respond when difficult times come. We should respond in humility because we have sometimes terrifying things that we have to face. This is how we face them. For Habakkuk, humility came in the realization that God was indeed in control. Don't ever forget that. Because he is as in control. That's hard to say. Today, as he ever was in the time of Habakkuk. He's not lost one ounce of control in all of this time. So I want to start with this humility in realization. The opening of chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk seems to indicate that Habakkuk was very deeply moved by Jehovah's response, which is actually his second response in chapter 2. When the prophet had originally objected to this, as I mentioned, he couldn't believe that God would enact a plan like this and bring an evil people as he viewed the Chaldeans. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 13, he said, your eyes are too pure. To look at this kind of evil. You can't possibly be serious. Well, God responded to it to that in chapter two by it's kind of a okay, let's get something straight kind of a response. And the basic message of chapter two was you have a job to do, and I have a job to do. God speaking to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you have a job to do, and I have a job to do, and your job is not to evaluate my job and tell me how to do it. Your job is very simple. Habakkuk 2, beginning in verse 2. Write the vision and make it plain that the one who hears may run. For the righteous man shall live by his faith. Now, a lot of times people, especially when Paul is going to quote that verse 4 in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And a lot of people have the idea that Paul is describing the, the faithful life that a Christian must live. He's not. And neither was Habakkuk. God is telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk judgment is coming and you need to tell my people that judgment is coming and they need to get ready for it. Because the only way they're going to live through it, the only way they're going to survive is by faith. The people who don't have faith are not going to survive this. Paul is addressing the exact same thing in Romans chapter 1. Looking at chapter 2 and verse 1 where he's talking about a day of wrath and revelation. 
chapter 1, verse 18 of the book of Romans. He talks about this, this uh, day when the, the, the uh, wrath of God is going to be revealed. Judgment is coming, folks. Whether it's short-term judgment like happened to Jerusalem, or whether it's the judgment. Judgment is coming. God wants us to write the vision and make it plain. We've got the same job Habakkuk did. What I'm saying is, and what God was saying to Habakkuk is, Habakkuk, your job is not. 21st century Christians, your job is not to evaluate my, my uh, plan. Your job is not even necessarily to understand my plan. And we need to understand that we don't have every time, all the time, maybe not even very many of the times, the answers to the questions that people have. Why is God letting this happen to this nation? Well, from a very theological point of view, my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't get it either. I really don't understand. It is such a comfort to me to finally figure out I don't have to. I don't have to. Something that I, I said several years ago and I've repeated it a lot is I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I don't have to. All I have to do is know the one who does know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if I know him, then whatever happens tomorrow, I can have the attitude of Habakkuk in chapter 3 of his oracle. The way Habakkuk responds to all of this indicates the humility that he had. Apparently, God's response to him in chapter 2 had its desired result. Now Habakkuk understands his proper role in all of this. Again, he doesn't have all the answers about all the details, and now he knows he doesn't need to know. He knows his role, and he trusts his Lord. Very interesting Hebrew term is used to describe the manner or the form of what Habakkuk is going to say in chapter 3 in that prayer. It's, it's a Hebrew word that's not really translated into, into English in our English versions. It's transliterated. They just make up an English word to copy the, the uh, Hebrew word. And this is one of those extremely rare examples of when, I think anyway, the Hebrew word is easier to pronounce than the English word. <laughs> I've never really learned how to, I've never been able to figure out how do you pronounce that word. In Hebrew, it's shigayon. Now the footnote in my Bible describes or defines that Hebrew word as a highly emotional, poetic form. And Habakkuk is extremely emotional at this point. Humbled. We're talking about humility. I've not ever found a better way to define that word. Highly emotional, poetic form. The prophet says he heard what the Lord was saying about the coming of judgment. And quote, I fear. I fear. Now here's where I disagree with the footnote in my Bible. Because the footnote in my Bible wants to say that really means that uh, I stand in awe of your work, O Lord. And I don't at all want to suggest that we ought not to stand in awe of the work of the Lord. We should. 
You can't live here and not stand in awe of the work of the Lord, right? It's a few miles to the west of here. That's not what Habakkuk is saying. And that's very clearly communicated when you get down to verse 16, which I'll get to in just a moment. But um, he says, I fear. I fear. And there's great application here for us. As we said earlier, there's a lot happening in this world right now that we don't understand. And again, good news, we don't have to. Habakkuk is going to show us that our trust in the Lord is not misplaced. It's not misplaced. You ever see a, a small child, toddler, jump off of a high place into dad's arms or mom's arms? They've not learned They've not grown enough and learned and become intelligent enough to know that you can't trust dad to catch you. <laughs> they will learn that pretty soon, probably shortly, shortly after dad drops them the first time. I remember when Jessica was just about the age I'm talking about and, and we were playing and I did something that made her come flying out of the chair and I, I, I could not reach her with my arms to break the fall. So I stuck my leg out, kicked her right in the forehead. <laughs> But I broke her fall. She did not hit the floor. <laughs> Children do learn those lessons. They've not learned that. We what did the, what was it Jesus said? You need to become like little children. We need to trust God like little children. It's not misplaced. Habakkuk describes God's power in demonstration of what he's done. Now, beginning in verse 3 of this, and we're going to move pretty quickly down through these next several verses, the majority of what Habakkuk has to say is what can be described as a theophany, which really is God making an appearance. But he doesn't make any kind of appearance in physical form that you can see and say, that's God. Now, the theophany, the appearance of God that is manifested is, in, is through the natural elements. Wind, storms, floods, those kinds of things. And Habakkuk says, that was God doing that. And that was God doing that. God was showing his power. And it, it's very clear that he's trying to describe the futility of resisting God's plans. How can you possibly resist God who controls even the elements? I mean, seriously, if God can wake up from a nap and stand up in a boat and tell a storm to hush, you're scaring my friends and the storm obeys, how do you resist that? You can't, and that's his point. He's describing a day of the Lord. Now, Scripture has many days of the Lord that we find throughout. Um, sometimes that phrase is used when God would come in judgment on a particular nation or people. Sometimes that phrase is used when God is coming to rescue his people. And sometimes those are the same event. That's a day of the Lord. Sometimes it's used when, um, uh, or this kind of language, I should say, apocalyptic or figurative language is uh, often used uh, that describes a great movement or change in heavenly bodies. That's really not literal. Nobody can actually see those things happening. And one example of that is uh, found in Acts chapter 2 in, with the uh, establishment of the Lord's church. 
He says in uh, verses 19 and 20 of that chapter, I will grant wonders, and this is quoting from the prophet Joel, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. But there's no record that anybody saw anything like that literally happening. happening. What drew that great crowd to where the apostles were was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. But that kind of language is used to describe that day of the Lord. Of course, there is one great day of the Lord that's still in our future. And that's that last day of the Lord. A day in which, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, every eye will see Jesus coming in glory. And He will come, 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 and 8, with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retributions to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey His will. That's that great day in the Lord. In Habakkuk chapter 3, there's no way to resist a God this powerful. It's not that mankind may try to resist and is just totally overcome. No, there's no resistance at all. There's just none whatsoever. There's only simple resignation of the reality of the situation. And with that sense of resignation, according to what Paul said in going back to Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's every single one. My friends, that judgment awaits us in our future. And more critically, in the future of everyone alive today who does not know God and who does not obey His will. It is incumbent upon us to stop trying to understand all the whys and the wherefores. And when I say stop, I don't mean don't ever do that. I mean... That's not, that's not our priority. Don't make that our priority. Don't make that a condition for believing in God. Don't make that a condition for obeying the will of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If I can't understand it, then I'm not going to obey it. It's not going to work. We've got to stop doing that. God has a plan. And we, His children, are part of that plan. And our job, instead of trying to understand that, is to write the vision and make it plain. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we're writing inspired words that God is giving me all the time. It means that I'm preaching the word that He gave those prophets and writers of Scripture. That's my writing the vision and making it plain. That's me communicating, English cop guys, <laughs> that's me communicating how people can avoid that judgment making it plain so that the one who hears may run, we could say may prepare for the destruction of Jerusalem. They needed to literally run. It's amazing how many of God's people did run. When Jerusalem was finally destroyed in the first century, God's people ran. They knew they needed to be out of there. That's what our job is. That is what our job is. We must share the saving gospel of Jesus Christ so that those who do not know God will know God. And for those who do not obey the will of God will obey the will of God. That's our job. There's a great deal of hopelessness and despair in the world today, and sadly that includes even some in the church. 
The initial good news that we can take from a book like Habakkuk is that the prophet himself would have been counted in that number. You know what? Sometimes preachers, sometimes elders, other church leaders become discouraged. We don't need to. We don't need to. This same hopeless prophet was able to write what I call a jewel of hope at the end of chapter 3. We noted earlier that the right response is resignation to Jehovah's plan and Jehovah's authority. And what makes that possible is the realization that there is hope in resignation. I find these last four verses of Habakkuk to be among the most encouraging words in all of Scripture. Perhaps inspiring is a better way to describe it, but encouraging fits as well. I mentioned earlier that the prophet considers this judgment or considered the judgment that was coming on Jerusalem. And he knows there's nothing now, knows now there's nothing he can do to change that. It's going to happen. And even though he realizes and understands his role, there's still a lot of un unknowns. And frankly, that terrified Habakkuk. Every word of verse 16 shows the distress of what he was feeling. I, read that with me. I heard, I heard the plan and my inward parts trembled. Do you think that was Habakkuk standing out somewhere just in awe of God's plan? <laughs> No, he was terrified. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place, I tremble. We've not been given such detail about what lies in our future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Just in our recent history, we have enough evidence to know that we have no idea how quickly things can change and change dramatically. Let's go back in our minds to a time that every one of us in here can remember probably. January 2020. Did anybody in here have any idea that in two months from the middle of January, two months later, Virtually every church in this country, and indeed many more in the world, would close its doors. Absolutely close its doors. I didn't see that coming. I don't know anybody that saw that coming. One of the things that we had to come to terms with as an eldership was that there was no way that we could plan anything from week to week. We started having meetings on a weekly basis. And we still couldn't plan anything because we didn't know if one week from today or three days from today, we were gonna be able to carry out the plans that we were making. Things were changing so fast it made the head spin. And many, many people were significantly affected on a deeply personal level. Mental health became a significant concern and continues to be one that's talked about all the time. 
There was hopelessness and despair at every turn. Habakkuk uncovered, though, the hope that he found in resignation. There was a realization and acknowledgement that he doesn't know what's going to happen, but it doesn't matter. In a worst case scenario, he knows what his response is going to be. And that's what I want to challenge us today to come to that same realization. Worst case scenario, whatever that is, we know what we're going to do. We know. Verse 17 describes the utter collapse of an agrarian society, which is the society that he lived in. And it doesn't matter to him if that worst case scenario turns out to be the reality. To him, God would be God. I want you to consider what your worst case scenario might be. It could be a military scenario. I grew up in a time when, you know, the doomsday clock was going. There was always this worry that there was going to be nuclear war between uh, Russia and, and the United States. And it was going to destroy the whole world. I'm pretty sure that when the world is destroyed, nobody's going to say, okay, now was that a nuclear war? Or, oh, there's Jesus. Never mind. <laughs> no. But that was a concern. We were literally concerned that we might be invaded by a foreign power and our way of life be changed or cease forever. It could be on a more personal level. Economic collapse. Um, laid off from a job, fired from a job or something. It might be that you've already experienced in your mind your worst case scenario in the, in the loss of a loved one. I know many have. We all have to realize that there is the same hope and resignation for us that Habakkuk described in chapter 3. No matter how long we ask it, no matter how hard we ask it, there's no need to have the answer to why. We may feel like it. We have that need, but we don't. There's only the need to resign ourselves to the fact, to the glorious fact, that God is in control. No matter what happens, God is still God. Verse 17 actually begins what becomes in verses 18 and 19, a crescendo of praise and glory to Jehovah God. He says, no matter what happens, worst case scenario or not, God is still God. And no matter how much I suffer, I will still glorify Him. <laughs> Let's look at what he actually said, the words that he penned at the direction of the Holy Spirit. He said, though the fig tree not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the hills, in, in the stalls, I'm sorry, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds. I don't care what happens to me in this world. God is the one who's going to make me stand. God is the one who props me up. Take away all of the agriculture. It's a big part of our economy. Take away all of the tech industry. Take away all of it. 
I don't care. Those things don't prop me up. God props me up. Let somebody come in. Probably not going to be Russia now. They're busy. Let China come in and totally change our way of life. Destroy it. When I say I don't care, I don't mean to say I'd be just as happy as a clam if that happened. But God will prop me up through that. One of the greatest blessings, and there been there were lots, of our living in the mission field was being able to live in another culture, in a culture that lived under a military dictatorship. Phones tapped. Violence in the streets. Curfew. You're out on the street after a certain hour, you could just disappear and nobody ever know what happened to you. All of those things helped me and helped me to understand not one single one of those things interrupted my service to God. Not one single one. It doesn't matter what happens in this country or any other country. God is still God. God has a plan. And His plan for me, and folks, His plan for you, is that we write the vision and make it plain. And I want us to see in Habakkuk's story where he goes from, from frustration to, and we didn't really talk about this because we didn't spend any time there in chapter 1, his, his response to God's response, from frustration to shock to hopelessness and despair and fear and terror to hope and resignation. God is still God. And whatever happens, I'll praise Him. Amen. What do we do when there is nowhere else to turn? The short answer is we turn to where we should have turned to start with. <laughs> it would have saved us an awful lot of pain and suffering. But sometimes we have to have the pain and suffering. And it's when we finally let go. And as children in spirit jump off the edge, that He catches us. One final thing before I close, and I'll give you a few minutes back. The point is, God is always going to catch us. But I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying or the scripture says that he's necessarily going to catch us on this side of the grave. We really need to understand that God's deliverance that he promises may be through that doorway called death. That may be the real escape that we need. And if we, will, if we will understand that and embrace the power of that, what could this world possibly do to hurt me? When 
you're speaking to the world, when your toughest weapon, the toughest, baddest weapon you have in your arsenal is to send me home to my Lord. Take your best shot. I won't be hard to find. That's what we do when there's nowhere else to turn. God bless. Amen. Amen.